Amos chapter 1. Did you hear uh, this about this uh, uh, conference that took place in California this past week? And the uh, very end of this conference, one of the experts spoke, and he was referring to the San Andreas Fault, uh, the famous fault. Uh, the movie was made about it recently. And basically was saying that the San Andreas Fault is overdue for another major earthquake. There hasn't been one there since 1906, the great San Francisco earthquake. But the quote that he gave was that the San Andreas Fault is locked and loaded and ready to roll. That it's past due. And that uh, his prediction is that... uh, at some point, a major earthquake in California is imminent. And so I remember I grew up uh, my earliest years uh, uh, in Stockton, California, up to the age of eight. Uh, and uh, I remember one day uh, going to school, coming back, and my mother telling us that uh, uh, they had predicted, somebody had predicted on that particular day, A massive earthquake was going to hit California and it was going to fall into the ocean and then people who lived in Yuma would be on the beach and and this this thing would happen. Uh, Because of this idea that at some point everybody knows that an earthquake is going to hit that part of the world and yet nobody knows when. Now I want to uh, 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 take that thought and I want you to consider something Uh, this morning, or this evening rather, on the subject of earthquakes, but I want to draw a spiritual parallel uh, for you uh, this evening, and I want to talk to you about uh, fault lines and living your life on a fault line. It's interesting to me that San Francisco, California, and uh, for all of its uh, notoriety, sits right on top of that fault line. And the idea that people build their lives on top of places that one day are going to shake. And I want you to see this one verse, Amos 1 verse 1. The scripture says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And I want you to notice the last statement. Two years before the earthquake. Two years before the earthquake. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to help us this evening. I ask you to let your spirit deal with our hearts. God, we understand that there are no guarantees in this world, but our confidence is in a kingdom that will never be shaken. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk to you about fault lines Uh, tonight. And so let's think about earthquakes because this is a very interesting passage of scripture because um, the Bible doesn't really say a whole lot about earthquakes. But yet here in this text, um, uh, Amos is prophesying and uh, he begins to tell us uh, that his prophecies begin during the reign of the great king Uzziah. And, uh, and uh, you know, all that God would do through his life. Um, and he says that his prophecies began two years before the earthquake. And I think that's significant because he's not just referring to any earthquake, but the earthquake. 
If you were to say in America, uh, if you talked about the earthquake, probably in, in this, the lower 48, we would say, oh yeah, it was 1906, uh, the great San Francisco earthquake. And, uh, and then perhaps there are those here that would uh, say, oh no, no, well, what about the great earthquake in Anchorage, Alaska that took place in the 1960s? Uh, uh, Ralph and Rose Keener were there in Anchorage when that earthquake an 8.1 or 8.2 earthquake took place that to this day there are cities in Alaska that you can no longer reach by car because uh, of that earthquake that happened 50 years ago we're talking about the earthquake and the Bible tells us uh, that uh, there was an earthquake that was going to take place uh, that Amos was preaching uh, and prophesying and he says I want you to understand that when I began to preach to these people this was before the earthquake 250 years later Zechariah comes along and he begins to refer to that earthquake that happened two and a half centuries ago that it was so much a part of the national consciousness uh, that he can refer to it uh, two, uh, two and a half centuries later and everybody would know what he was talking about. It would be like you and I talking about uh, some event that happened in the 1700s and say, oh yeah, the earthquake. Uh, and we would all say, oh yeah, that earthquake, 1750. Yeah, that earthquake. We're talking about something that is very, very interesting. You go through the Bible and do your own study in earthquakes, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the Bible tells us that during the time when God was seeking to re- encourage Elijah, that there was an earthquake that passed by. Uh, we uh, know that at the cross, the Bible says, at the crucifixion, there was an earthquake. When Paul and Silas began to worship God, there was a an earthquake. You find earthquakes mentioned in the book of Revelation. I was talking to Yolanda, and she said, well, what about the story of, of uh, Korah? And the ground opening up, uh, and uh, we thought, well, maybe that was, uh, maybe they were in Florida and that was a sinkhole. I don't know. <laughs> but, the, you know, those are pretty much the mentions of earthquakes um, in the Bible, and yet earthquakes have played such a significant role um, in changing history. Joe Moreno and I, years ago, went to Turkey, and while we were there, we We went to the great uh, city of Ephesus. Ephesus was considered the third city of Asia Minor after uh, uh, Rome and Alexandria. It was an incredible city. It was a modern city. And you pass through the ruins. uh, You can can get an idea of, of the marvel that was there and the engineering that was involved there. And yet it was a city that lay in ruins. And the reason why was around 300 A.D., There was a major earthquake, and this was a great port city, and after that earthquake, the water rolled back six miles and never came back. And it simply went from being a great port city to be a city miles away from uh, uh, the Aegean Sea, and uh, as a result of that, uh, it became a swamp, and before long, uh, it became uh, empty, and uh, it is nothing but a city of ruins, uh, all because uh, of an earthquake. Now, to understand what earthquakes are, is to just, let me just kind of explain this to you uh, in very rudimentary uh, uh, language. I, I ministered this in our leaders' meeting the other day, uh, and right in the middle of it, when I'm talking about earthquakes, it dawned on me that Roland Perez is sitting there. Here he is, he's a geologist, uh, he knows everything about this, and I had this fear come over me. I had this vision of Roland back there going, 
he, he'd tell me later that I was right or I was accurate, but you know how Roland is, he's nice. Uh, but basically an earthquake is where two, where a fault line is where two tectonic plates, they tell us they're around seven, perhaps eight giant tectonic plates uh, that uh, our, our, our world sits on. And there are two giant plates that meet up together that we call the San Andreas Fault. Every year these plates are moving up against each other ever so slightly. They say the movement of a tectonic plate is about the same growth as your fingernail. And that is how they move them. And eventually they create so much pressure that there's going to be some sort of adjustment. They tell us that in 15 years... At the present rate, uh, if those tectonic plates continue to move at their same rate, uh, in 15 million years, Los Angeles and San Francisco will be right next to each other. These plates slide, they buckle, and they even collapse. And when that happens, when that pressure reaches that point, uh, then we call that an earthquake, uh, and the impact on the surface of the earth can be devastating. A few little facts about uh, Fault lines, there are small earthquakes every day somewhere in the world. Every year there are 500,000 detectable earthquakes. Uh, only about 100 of them will cause any kind of, of damage. We know that they are unpredictable. All human technology is limited. An expert can stand on Friday and declare uh, that the San Andreas Fault is overdue. Uh, he's not saying that necessarily uh, scientifically. He's not trying to predict anything because they're not predictable. But he's simply saying, as we know that these tectonic plates exist, we know they are moving, and every time they move, pressure increases. Uh, and he's simply making a statement, a law of averages, an educated guess, uh, that something is bound to happen. Here's the third truth about fault lines. People build their lives on top of them. Here's the most populous state in America, and yet it is a state most likely to suffer a massive earthquake. Some say that Mexico City is the most populated city in the world. Probably 30 million people live in Mexico City. And yet it is built on a lake, surrounded by volcanoes, and prone to earthquakes. And somehow in our mind you would think that people would say, uh, no, 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 no I, I'm not going to live on top of a fault line, but yet the exact opposite happens. And perhaps the most populous cities in the world are built right on top of earthquakes. My uncle used to uh, work for the United Nations and set up post offices in Latin America, and he spent a lot of time down there. And I remember him telling me once that he was in Peru and he had gone up to the Andes, and while he was there, he was told the story about how there was this earthquake that had taken place uh, high up in these mountains, and it created a massive landslide that rolled down uh, and then buried a village uh, in 60 feet of debris, killing everybody instantly. And then he went on to say, not long after that, the city was rebuilt. Very same spot, very same place waiting for another landslide. I remember years ago, and I think in 1998, we had a great flood here in San Antonio, and a very well-known picture was of a uh, 
house that was right along the river in New Braunfels and was swept away. And there was video of this house floating down the river. Four years later, there was another flood, uh, and guess what? They had rebuilt uh, a house on the same property, uh, and there it is floating down the river uh, again. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry, but I don't feel sorry for you. You're going to build in the same place. There's a problem there, and yet, look at our world today. People have built incredible cities right on top of fault lines. I want to talk to you about spiritual fault lines this evening. Because there are fault lines that you and I need to be aware of. Some of the strongest shakings in life that you experience will not be physical, but will be spiritual and emotional. Life has its share of turbulence. And Amos, as he is preaching to these people, he is, uh, he is saying, you know what, I am preaching to you, but you have no idea how things are going to be shaking in a couple of years. The truth is there's lots of seismic activity that takes place within our own hearts and our own minds and in our own relationships. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Do not be too soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Think about what Paul is saying there. He's saying, do not be shaken in mind. You know, the word shaken there, the, we know the New Testament was written in Greek. It's the Greek word seo, S-E-I-O. It's where we get our word seismograph from, and it means a tremor. And so the Apostle Paul uh, is talking about an earthquake of the mind. He's talking about life shaking you, and he's describing uh, something that happened to the Thessalonian church. Um, a false doctrine uh, had begun to uh, move through the church, and that false doctrine was that uh, the rapture had already happened, that the last days were upon them, um, and, uh, and uh, this was going on. And Paul has to calm them down because they had become shaken by a false doctrine. The reality of serving God in life is, beloved, that, you know what, life can't shake us up. Whether there's going to be an earthquake, or perhaps an earthquake in your life. And the issue then becomes, where are we going to build our lives? And are we building our life on a foundation that will survive a shaking? I want to talk to you about some of the dangers about where we can build our lives if we're not careful. I want to talk to you about three fault lines. That if you're not careful, you can begin to build your life on. You might do fine for now, but when things begin to shake, you'll find yourself on top of San Andreas. That would have been a good title for the sermon, by the way. First of all, there's the fault line of unconfessed sin. The reality is that sin is not always found out immediately. People can be very deceitful and self-justifying. In other words, they can say to themselves, well, I know, but it's not that bad, or my situation is different, and on and on and on. And, and as a result of that, they don't recognize the fissure that has been created. Remember that the Bible, when it uses the word confess in the New Testament, has two meanings. One meaning is to confess or to see your sin the way God sees your sin. It's to call sin, sin. To say, you know what, I sinned, I was wrong, I lied, I cheated, I stole, I 
lusted, I, and, and I take responsibility. It means to, to no longer excuse it or blame somebody else or point the finger and, or to use a euphemism and, and kind of lessen the pain and just simply say, I sinned. To call sin the what God calls sin and to say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I did the deed. I'm dirty. God, forgive me. And the promise is that when you do that, God will forgive your sin. Can you say amen? The second word means to speak out or to make known. And it's the idea that sometimes there's a need to talk to somebody, to unburden yourself. That God somehow has put into the human personality this need to say, you know what, uh, I need to talk to you, I need to unburden this, I need to get this out, I can't carry this any longer. And yet, uh, hiding it and a choice to hide it, and to just make all these steps to cover it up, and not realize that you begin to live your life on top of a fault line. Your life becomes all about hiding and making sure that you're not uh, going to be exposed. I knew a man years ago, this man uh, had, uh, had, uh, had something had happened in his life uh, years earlier. He had made great pains to cover it up, uh, make sure that nobody knew. He had dotted every I, crossed every T. Uh, but the problem is that years later, his conscience uh, was tormenting him. It had produced in him an insecurity. He was almost like a, a modern-day uh, uh, Cain uh, in that uh, he was paranoid and suspicious and believed that when men saw him they could see what he had done and seen his sin he created a tremendous insecurity in him he was the kind of guy that always wanted reaffirming and always wanted to be told everything was okay and if you were quiet around him and it, then it was like are you okay are you mad at me is everything and and, and, and all of that uh, was the result of this sense that there was this unresolved issue in his life um, this unconfessed sin uh, and uh, he was just waiting to be found out and he built his life on top of this fault line until one day he could bear it no longer and he finally talked to somebody about it. What a terrible way to live for God. To find yourself living on top of this and just waiting to be found out. Tormented by life. I've shared the story before about the man who went away to the military and grown up in church all his life answered his country's call, he went away, came back years later, made a meeting with his pastor, said to him, Pastor, I just wanted to meet with you to tell you I no longer believe. And I thought you should know. And the pastor responded, Son, why don't you tell me what you did? Because he understood the real issue wasn't a lack of faith, but it was something deeper. And the man broke down and confessed. You cannot build your life on the fault line of unconfessed sin. Live your life thinking, I'm just going to hide and cover up and nobody know and, and all that because something inside of you will begin to change the way you look at people, the way you look at God, the way you look at church, if you build your life that way. Secondly, there's the fault line of unresolved conflict. It's the idea that I'm going to smooth over cracks and fissures in relationships. Strife among brethren, strife in relationship, and just simply saying, I'm not going to get things right. Now, unfortunately, 
our own church can serve an example of what happens when the foundations start to, start to, start to break. And uh, it, it can be a very, very difficult thing. Uh, you know, someday tell us that when you begin to notice a crack in the wall or you begin to notice, and it can look minor. But, the, but if you live here in San Antonio, particularly in this side of town, all of a sudden a crack on the wall, it may look minor, but it's not minor. It's suggesting that there's actually something deeper going on. And I have seen people that they think, you know what I can do is I can just function without relationship. I can just function and, 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 and just, just, just drop this relationship and drop this. One of the heartbreaks of pastoring, if I could share my heart with you over the years and seeing people that you served God with for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, it's, and they're gone. Not even a goodbye. Not even a, I mean, and I think, how can somebody walk with God, uh, walk alongside people for, for decades, and then and just uh, from one day to the next, I'm gone, uh, I have nothing to say to you, uh, I have nothing to say, uh, and maybe I'll get an email a while later on, thank you, we really love you. No, 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 you don't love people and just disappear on them. The Civil War began in 1861. In the 1790s, letters were being written by the founding fathers of our country about the fact that they knew that slavery was a problem. They knew that this was an issue. It was going to be very, very bad. There's a letter Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, wrote and predicted that one day the, the southern states and the northern states would have to go to war over slavery. And she said this more than 60 years before the Civil War. Because she realized that this was an unresolved issue. That it was just simply swept under the rug. It wasn't dealt with. Uh, it wasn't addressed. Um, and it finally led to this. When you go to the Lincoln Memorial, there is, a, there is the second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln that's there inscribed in stone. And Lincoln, here at the very end of the Civil War, is making a very profound statement in which he says these words. He says, yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword as was said 3,000 years ago so still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether and what Abraham Lincoln was basically saying uh, is that terrible civil war that may have killed 600,000 men I think it was Chris Kelly that said it was like taking two vicious bulldogs, chaining their legs together and letting them fight. More men died in that war than all other American wars put together in five years. And Abraham Lincoln says uh, perhaps what we are looking at is the terrible judgment uh, on something that should have been dealt with a long time ago an unresolved conflict and the horrible, horrible price. Simply thinking, I can wash my hands of people, wash my hands of relationship, and not making things right. 
Peter came to the Lord and said, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Very interesting that when Peter wanted to discuss bitterness, why didn't he say, How often should I forgive the Romans who are occupying my country or the Caesar who rules over us with an iron fist? Why did not Peter say, how often do I have to forgive the Pharisees and their legalism and their horrible religious oppression over my life? He could have mentioned any number of natural enemies of a Galilean, but he didn't say that. When Peter said, when it comes to bitterness and forgiveness, it's not about governments, it's not about kings and rulers, it's not about people who disagree with me religiously, he said, how often do I forgive my brother? Because bitterness resides in close relationships. Bitterness resides where people are capable of hurting you. I'm sure that when Peter said, oh, often should I forgive my brother, that Andrew probably turned to him and said, what? You know, what did I do this time, you know? <laughs> but the truth is, beloved, it, the, the unresolved conflict is not with the, the, the devil. I remember one time praying for a woman here and she was in pain and I said, you need to, do you hate somebody? Yes. Who do you hate? I hate the devil. So that's okay, sis. It's, you can get away with that one. But it's not our problem, beloved. It's not forgiving the devil. It's forgiving our brethren. The third one is the fault line of unclear leadership. This is the idea that there's no clear line of authority or chain of command. This is the idea that people, you know, they kind of want to, to have an association with authority in their life, but they don't really want authority in their life. I go meet people all the time. I, you know, I, I, I've been places, you know, and, and I'll meet somebody that used to attend our church or attends our church every few months, and they'll see me, and, oh, pastor, and they'll, this is my pastor, and they'll introduce me to their family, and I'm shaking their hands, but I'm thinking, you liar. What do you mean I'm your pastor? You come to church once every three months, I'm your pastor. You wouldn't listen to a word I say. You wouldn't take a bit of advice. And so what happens is there's this idea that, well, I have leadership, but it's not really leadership because every time they exercise leadership over me, then they're like, there you go again. You don't like me. The problem is this. The idea is that when you have intact relationships and intact leadership, in the crisis moments of life is when you need leaders. It's in the crisis moments of life that either leaders are going to be able to help you. Think for a minute about D-Day. These soldiers have been through boot camp. They have been trained to listen and follow orders. They get into these Higgins boats. Uh, they are sent across the English Channel. Uh, and as they are approaching uh, Normandy, uh, you can now hear the bullets whizzing by. You can hear uh, the, the, the noise. Uh, and they know that when they step out of these boats, uh, that they are going to be exposed to live enemy fire. These young men, they're boys, most of them. And uh, there they are, and that sergeant, that chain of command, they have been taught and drilled into them, orders them to leave the boat and to expose themselves to enemy fire. It is only the fact that they absolutely believe in leadership, that they get out of the boat, they wade onto the shore, they, are, they throw themselves on the beach, uh, bullets are flying overhead, uh, and they will remain there. Their self-preservation instinct makes them want to crawl uh, into a hole. And again, it is those sergeants 
who move along the beach and order these men to get up and move forward for their own sake. And it is only because these men have a clear line of authority that they're able to move through to safety, they're able to accomplish their mission. In a crisis moment, if it's like, well, I don't really trust, uh, and I don't know if I really want to follow, and I don't really know who, I, who my leader is, in times like that, when it's life starts shaking without clear lines of authority, you're in trouble. You know, you talk to people, well, who's your pastor? Well, you know, I, I have this brother, but I really like this guy. And, I, you know, that person over there, you know, there's an old saying, if you have two heads, you have no head. But it really is, it's become optional. Now it's just kind of, well, I will follow whoever does what I want. Whoever agrees with me. Otherwise, they're no longer my leader. And people build their lives on these fault lines. But the problem is the earthquake is going to come. The scripture says two years before the earthquake. Let me just close and just tell you this, morning, this evening that the warning is an expression of God's mercy. Everything else that Amos would say in this book is in the context two years before the earthquake. You know, the time of Uzziah was a time of prosperity and blessing. Uzziah was king for 52 years. He was the longest or one of the longest kings of Judah. And these people, things were smooth. Hence, it was okay to live on a fault line because after all, there was prosperity. There was a, a, an appearance of security that they allowed themselves to build. And here he says... You do not understand that it's not always going to be this way. A shaking is going to come. Amos, later on in chapter 6, says, Woe to you who put afar off the day of doom. Woe to you who put afar off the day of doom, who somehow think, you know what, I'm just going to ride this, I'm not going to deal with these issues, because somehow the day of doom is far away. Nebuchadnezzar has a terrible dream, and in his dream, he sees a, a, a mighty tree from which all of nature resides, and then he sees that tree chopped down into a stump and chained. He knows it means something, and so he seeks out direction, and Daniel comes to him and says, you know what's happening, king? You have become so filled with pride that your pride is going to cause you to be cut down to size. You're going to lose all the blessing and fruitfulness that is in your life, uh, and you are going to be brought under terrible bondage for seven years. Nebuchadnezzar dismisses him, and listen to me, he does nothing about the warning. Twelve months later, he's walking on the top of the walls, admiring the city of Babylon, he says, is this not great Babylon that I have built by my hand? And the Bible says, right at that moment, a one-year-old warning comes to pass and his reason is taken from him. He loses his mind. He is removed from his throne. He is set out to graze and behave like an absolute beast for seven years. And the most amazing thing about that story is 12 months earlier, he was warned. And he would not listen to a warning. 
One of the tragedies of life, beloved, is people are warned and they don't understand that that warning is God's mercy. It is God saying, I want to spare you. It is God's way, I want to save you. How many times when people get warned, they get mad? They get upset. Who do you think you are? And they don't realize that in that warning is God's mercy saying, I want to save you. I'll leave you with this last thought. Even when things shake on the earth, they don't shake in heaven. The Bible says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You know, some people believe, in fact, the Jewish historian Josephus said that he, that, 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 uh, he believed that that earthquake happened when Josephus, wanting to be not just king, but, or, or I'm sorry, Uzziah, wanting to not just be a king but a priest, forced his way into the temple so that he could burn sac- incense. Uh, and the Bible says, as the priests were trying to restrain him, leprosy grew in his forehead, this great king. And it was at that moment that this earthquake happened. I'm not sure that's his conjecture. But I will say this. A few years later, King Uzziah died. He died in disgrace. It was a very sad time. And Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. Because here was a national leader, a man who had been admired for many, many years, and then died at the end of his life in disgrace. It was a very tragic time. It was a time of great mourning in the nation. He had been their king for 52 years. And even as that kingdom was being troubled, Isaiah had a vision, and he says, I see the throne of God, and guess what? His throne is secure. He's in complete control. The governments of men may shake, but the kingdom of God, beloved, is an unshakable kingdom. Let's bow our heads. Our heads are bowed and we're before God this evening. You know, Jesus said it another way, didn't he? He said, listen, when you build your house, build your house on a sure foundation. Don't build your house on sand. We often use that when we speak to the lost, don't we? And we tell them, don't build your life on the sands of, of this world and popular culture and on the sands of financial security or, or the sands of idolatry and on and on and on. But you know, this evening it's possible to be a Christian and still choose to live on top of the San Andreas Fault. And know that that's there and know these things aren't right, but somehow just say, I'm just going to go ahead and build here. Why? Because we don't think that an earthquake is coming. I want to ask this evening while our heads are bowed, if there's anybody here today, you're not right with God. You're not saved. You need forgiveness. God loves you. The blood of Jesus is available today to forgive your sin. And if you want to get your heart right with God tonight, all around this building, we're waiting on God. You're in this building. Friend, I don't know the future. I don't know what's going to happen in life. But I know one thing. Jesus Christ, God's Son, died for you so that your sins could be forgiven. One day, every one of us is going to stand before God. We're going to give an account. And my friend, the Bible says that the destiny of the souls of men is either with him in heaven or to be separated God forever. Separated from God forever in hell. That's it. I'm not trying to offend you, but I'm telling you the truth. Because in that warning is an expression of God's mercy. He wants to save you. You'll never be good enough to go to heaven. 
Your good works don't outweigh your bad. We are sinners, every last one of us. The good news is Jesus Christ died in our place. The innocent died for the guilty so that through him we could find forgiveness. Not only forgiveness, but power to change. I want to give an invitation to anybody here and say, Pastor Ruby, I need to get my heart right with God. I need forgiveness. I need God's mercy on my life. I received the warning. I want to turn to Christ. If that's you, while our heads are bowed, I'd like you just to raise your hand right now. Just put it up high where I can see it. And by raising your hand, you're saying, I need prayer, Pastor. I'm not right with God. I want Jesus Christ to come into my life. Lift up your hand. Put it up high where I can see it. And I'm going to hold it there just for a minute. I'm not right with God. I'm not right. Would you pray for me? Maybe you're backslidden. I want to get my heart right with God. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Thank you. Amen. Hands are going up. Are there any others? I'm not right with God, Pastor. But I want to get right with God. Here's my hand. Lift it up. God's dealing with you tonight. Would you respond? All around this building. Before we move on, I want to give you an opportunity. Lift up your hand. God's dealing with you this evening. Would you respond? I'm not saved or I'm backslidden. Would you pray for me? Lift it up. Amen. Amen. I want you that lifted your hand just to lift your head and look at me just for a minute. You raised your hand. Just slip up your head just for a minute. Look at me. Amen. God's dealing with you tonight. He wants to help you. Anybody else? You know, church this evening, never allow yourself to just kind of build on a fault line. Say, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to live this way. The whole purpose of Amos opening his mouth and beginning to prophesy was to say, you know what? The time to get things right is now. The time to let God help you is now. Don't wait for the crisis. Don't wait until everything starts shaking. Now's the time to say, God, I'm going to deal with these issues. I'm going to make things right. So that when the shakings that do come in this world come, I'm ready for it. Let's stand together this evening. I'm going to open these altars tonight. I believe the Spirit of God is speaking to hearts. Let's worship God tonight.